Well, I'm thinking about going into business. Um, I'm thinking about going into the landscaping business. Now, Tom might tell me that that's a hard field to get into, lots of physical labor involved, but you've got to understand, I'm going into a specialty part of the landscape business. I'm going to start a business, I'm going to specialize in window boxes. Uh, you know window boxes, you know those little planters that are underneath of a, a window, you know. I'm going to plant and, and tend to window boxes. I'm going to be a window box weeder. I'm going to take the weeds out of window boxes. Someone says, what? I, are you serious? You really think you can make a business out of doing that? Uh, that's, that, that you, you can't specialize like that in the landscape business. You certainly won't succeed. You've got to be able to do more than that. And everybody, I think everybody would say anybody with such a plan as that is just absolutely ridiculous. My idea is that the idea of super specialization typically doesn't work. Lately, recently, some preachers have been doing, I think, the equivalent of that. Specializing, wanting to specialize in just one part of the gospel message. Uh, specifically, uh, when, when they do that, when they specialize like that, they are not preaching the whole counsel of God, as Paul said that he did in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. They want to just be specialists in one part. In particular, some of our preachers lately have gotten involved in this business about grace. And they want to preach about grace all the, all the time. And they even give the impression that they perhaps are the first to ever understand what God's grace is all about, you know. I actually think that's a pretty arrogant presumptuous presumption. You know, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been around for 2,000 years now. And for me to come along here in 2014 and imagine that I'm the first person who ever figured this out, or I'm the first person who ever understood this, I'm the first one to ever really see it like it accurately is, that's an arrogant and rather presumptuous notion. Wouldn't you agree? There have been a lot of smart people, a lot of faithful men and women throughout the last 2,000 years who have devoted themselves to studying the Word of God. And for me to imagine that I'm smarter than all of them and I've figured out what they were never able to, to comprehend, I, I think that's just a sense of arrogance. Today we want to talk about God's grace. And I, I want to tell you right up front, I think the subject of God's grace is very important. It is an important and vital Bible subject, necessary to our salvation. We want to talk about some of the errors. Oops, excuse me. Let me go back. We want to talk about some of the errors that that uh, are being taught in contrast to some simple facts that we know from the Word of God. So we want to talk about grace this morning. Unfortunately, as I said, some of our own brethren are being led astray by some of the things that they are trying to teach and some of the things that they're trying to implement in regards to the subject of God's grace. We hope that we can say some things that will be helpful this morning. Thanks for being here. As has been mentioned already, we're grateful for the presence of each and every one. We have some visitors with us today, and we're always glad when visitors come. We want you to come back. We're open to your questions. We'd be glad to sit down with you and study the Bible in depth. You know, in these times like this, we don't have the time to talk about a wide array of Bible subjects. We're usually talking about something specific, like the subject of grace. But we'd be glad to engage with you in a very thorough study of the Bible. If you have questions, if you have things that you'd like to know, uh, and maybe even some areas where you feel a bit of confusion, perhaps some topics that you might think you disagree with us about, we're open to all that. We'd love to study the Bible. And if you have questions and we can assist, please let us know. 
Thanks for being here this morning. We appreciate you very much. Let's talk about God's grace. Now, what we said is we want to talk about some facts. We want to talk about what we know. I think there's a lot of very wild speculation uh, that, that some are making, but we know some very basic and necessary facts about God's grace. First of all, we could talk about its definition. And we very frequently give the definition of grace as unmerited favor. Uh, some people have been critical of this definition, thinking that it's an oversimplification, but I actually don't think that it is really oversimplified. It is a, I think, accurate expression of grace. Unmerited means undeserved. Favor means a kindness, something done, bestowed upon you. So an undeserved kindness has come our way. It's an unmerited favor of God directed toward us. And I think the Scriptures demonstrate that this is a fair definition of God's grace. In Psalm chapter 84, verse 11, it says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Notice, the Lord will give grace... And then he says, no good thing will he withhold. Would you agree with me then from that statement that grace is good things? He's going to give grace, therefore he will not withhold good things. The giving of grace is the bestowing of good things. In James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father. Everything we have is a gift from God. And so when we consider all the things which we enjoy in this life, it's a gift from God. He's the giver of every good thing. The very fact that we have air to breathe, that we have clothes to wear, we have shelter to live in, all of the things that we have that are provided to us in this physical world are gifts from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And so we are grateful for every manifestation of God's grace, His goodness, His kindness. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but He has bestowed that upon us. Of course, the ultimate manifestation of His grace is in the spiritual blessings we have through Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Notice Paul references the grace of God and connects it with what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. God's grace is especially, abundantly shown in the sending of His Son Jesus that He would come to this low land of sin and misery, live as a man, live a perfect life, set an, uh, uh, an ideal example, and then die that cruel cross on, uh, death on the cross, shedding His blood there as an atonement for our sins, all the good that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And, and so here's the kindness, that's the, that's the favor that God showed on us through His Son, but it was clearly undeserved. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the favor. God sent His Son. We were undeserving. We didn't merit it. It's unmerited favor of God. And so over and over again, I think we see that the Bible explains that as a fair and accurate definition of what grace is. It is the unmerited favor of God. When we think about all that, when we think about what God has done for us in this physical world with all the blessings we enjoy, when we especially think what God has done through, for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, I think we ought to be left with the same 
expression that David used in Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visited him? Visiteth him? Why would God do this? I mean, we don't deserve it. It's so amazing what he does continually for us. Why would he do that? We don't deserve it. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Why would you be mindful of us, God, when we're so weak and miserable? And yet he does. We are the recipients of his unmerited favor. What else do we know about grace? We know that grace provides for us what our own efforts could never achieve. This is just sort of an amplification of the first point, but what if someone said, well, if I just worked a little bit harder, if I put in more effort, if I exerted myself more diligently, if, if I just really, really put forth effort, I think I could make it on my own. You know? I think I could get there. I think I could be what I ought to be. I, I think I could be everything expected of me. I, I wouldn't need any help if I just, maybe I just need to work harder, try more. No. I don't care how hard you work. I don't, have, I don't care how much effort you put into it. Now, that's not saying we shouldn't put forth as much effort as we can. But the fact of the matter is, if you worked just as hard as you possibly could, constantly, without fail, you could never get there. No amount of work could ever suffice to cover the sins that we have committed that would cause God to be in a position where he owed us salvation, where we merited it, we earned it. It would never be so. We just can't do that. One of the best-known passages about God's grace and his giving of salvation to us is the one that Arthur read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice, we're saved by grace. If someone asks, do you believe that we're saved by God's grace? The answer has to be absolutely yes, right? This scripture attests to that. We are saved by grace. But notice also, it's not of ourselves. In other words, it's not something we could do or earn or merit. There's no way that I could go before God in final judgment and say, you owe me. Give me what is my due. I could never do that. It's not possible. We're saved by grace. That, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, that, 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 that phrase right there, not of works, lest any man should boast. I can't say, I did this. Look at me. Look what I've accomplished. God owes me salvation. No, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, that's an important expression. Very true. We believe it completely. By grace are you saved through faith, not, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now be careful, because some people like to misuse this text. Uh, the text goes on to even mention good works, things that we should walk in. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but even in this very, very familiar passage that describes salvation by grace and faith, the idea of works and things we do are included now. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But yes, we are saved by grace. We cannot earn it. That same idea that you can't earn your salvation is repeated over and over again in the Word of God. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which is given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's not by our earned or merited endeavors, 
It's by his purpose, his grace. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 18, Daniel said, Oh, oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes. For we know this is what Daniel said. Daniel was a very good man, way better than most, one of the most faithful men of God who ever lived. What did he say? For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. Daniel is saying, not that we deserve it, not that we have earned it, not by our righteousness, but, but for thy great mercies. Daniel was beseeching the Lord. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So again, grace is the unmerited or undeserved favor or kindness of God toward us. And it provides what our own efforts could never achieve. I don't care how hard you work or how long you try. You could never get there on your own. We are certainly in need of God's grace. One of the good things to know, though, is that it is for everyone. It's, it's for us all. And we need to rejoice in that. You know, there is this Calvinistic view. John Calvin came up with a system of theology 500 years ago, and, and a lot of people still follow it. And one of the basic notions of Calvinism is that God has chosen to save some individuals and not others. That would mean, then, that God's grace is directed towards certain people, but not others. It is the idea of predestination or foreordination, that God has chosen to save some, but he chooses not to save others. And so he, he chooses to save Gordon and Mark and Mike, but he chooses not to save me or Dan or Tom. Well, where's the? How, how could that possibly be so? That's a horrible doctrine if you stop to think about it, and I think it's clearly contrary to the very nature of God to be such a respecter of person. The Word of God says that he is not a respecter of person. We should rejoice in knowing that what we need, God's grace, is available for us all. Notice in Titus chapter 2, beginning verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There's the grace of God, and it has appeared to all men. Now, I don't know. I don't know how you correlate or, or try to harmonize a doctrine which says God chooses to save some and not others. How, how in the world would you harmonize that false notion with what the Bible very definitely says that the grace of God has appeared to all men. Look again in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. There's the grace of God again seen in what was done through Jesus. Jesus should taste of death for every man. Does every mean every or not? Did Jesus die for all men or not? The, the notion of predestination or foreordination, John Calvin's notion that some are chosen to be saved and others are not, that doesn't sound like every man, does it? The Bible says the grace of God is shown for every man. That's, that's great and good news. Now, we need it. We need this undeserved kindness of God because our own works could never save us, thankfully it is for us all. The, the grace of God is for us all. But 
we have to point out that this grace of God can be refused. This is a necessary follow-up to the previous point. God's grace is for us all, but you can refuse it if you choose to do so. Maybe we could draw an analogy. Let's say that there's some horrible plague that begins, and I mean it's, it's running rampant. And we've heard the news stories, all in the news. People are dying right and left. Whoever comes into contact with this terrible disease, they're just dying uh, in huge numbers. But they've been busy uh, in the laboratories, and they have come up with a medical cure. Take this shot, and you will not die from the disease. The medicine is available. And there's an ample supply of it. There's enough for everybody. There's, one, there's a shot for you if you want it. But you have to take action. You have to take action. You have to go to where they're giving the shots. You may have to pay some money in order to get it. You have to take certain action to receive this benefit that will save your life from this terrible disease going on. The medicine is available, but if you don't do something, then you won't get it. Uh, there's something that you have to do to receive that benefit. I think that's understandable. Well, in the same way, we could say, here, you have to decide if you're going to do what's necessary to receive God's grace. We're going to talk in a minute about some of those conditions which, which we have to meet to receive His grace. But right here, we're just simply saying you've got to make a decision. God's grace is available to everyone, but you have to make a decision to receive it. In James chapter 4, verse 6, He giveth more grace... Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. What about that? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud who will not submit themselves to him. Do you see that? And so if you've got a hard heart this morning, and you're refusing to accept what God wants to give you, then you can do that. He gives you that ability to refuse his grace. 1 Peter 5, beginning verse 5, God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. I think all of us have probably, sadly, had the experience of knowing people who just sort of stubbornly and proudly refused to submit to God. And therefore, they reject the grace which he is offering. If that would happen to describe you at all this morning, we just beg you, you need this grace of God. You need His kindness. You don't deserve it, but you need it, and He's made it available to you. Don't refuse the grace of God. If you do, it'll be the biggest mistake you've ever made or ever will make to refuse the grace of God. This grace of God has conditions attached to it. I want to go back, just to prove that. Now, there are a lot of people who really don't like the point we're going to attempt to prove from Scripture right here, that the grace of God has conditions attached to it. In fact, uh, uh, even recently, uh, I've known of a, a young gospel preacher, uh, I know him personally, and, and he has gone off, the, I would say, off the deep end on this subject of grace. Now he's left the Lord's church, and he's denying things like the necessity of baptism and so forth because he got all bound up in this subject of grace. He was one of those ones I was describing earlier, by the way, who imagined that he had discovered things and understood things about grace that no one ever figured out before him. And now, because he thinks he's got that all figured out, 
he is denying that there are conditions attached to God's grace, that there are things that you must do, like being baptized for the remission of sins. I think we can prove that there are conditions attached to salvation. Look at it this way. Go back to this verse. We looked at this earlier. Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, if that's all it takes is for God to shower His grace on you, then that's already happened, right? The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And so if that's all there is to it, then everybody would be saved, right? Wouldn't that be a necessary conclusion? If it's all by grace and nothing by meeting the conditions of God's pardon, then everyone would be saved because the grace of God has appeared to all men. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, wait a minute. Jesus said here, if you're just going to paraphrase this very loosely, Jesus said the majority is going to be lost and only a minority is going to be saved. Isn't that what he said? But the grace of God has appeared to all men. So if it was just by grace, everybody would be saved. Jesus clearly said not everybody's going to be saved. So there's got to be more than God's grace. We've got to accept his grace and we've got to meet the conditions of his grace. The very best Old Testament example, I think, of grace is that story of Noah. So familiar to us. Our kids studied in Bible class. So many great lessons in Noah. Now, we're not saying that we're commanded to do the same thing Noah was commanded to do. Noah was commanded to build an ark. We're not commanded to build an ark. You don't have to do that. Don't go out and start cutting wood for an ark today. You don't have to do that. But it demonstrates how grace works in the story of Noah. We see it. God's in Genesis 6, beginning verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah's deliverance from the, the devastating effects of the flood was because he, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But what did that involve for him? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house. When we've studied the story of Noah before, we've concluded that it's quite possible that under those primitive conditions that he was expected to work under, it may have taken Noah on the order of 120 years to build the ark. Can you imagine a building project of that complexity, of that enormity? Maybe taking Noah 120 years to complete, Noah had to work hard to prepare that ark to save himself and his family. But wait a minute, I thought it said God's grace was upon Noah. Yes, God's grace was upon Noah, but Noah still had to do the building of the ark. What if Noah just sat back and said, well, I believe that God will save me by his grace. That's all I got to do, just sit back and wait. Well, he wouldn't have washed away in the flood along with everybody else. Noah had to meet the condition of preparing that ark. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. He did everything God said to do the way God said to do it. Did that negate God's grace? No, it did not. Noah was still the recipient of God's grace, but he had to meet the conditions that God placed upon him. I think that example uh, is a good one to prove 
that grace has conditions attached to it. What are our conditions? I'll tell you, uh, we've got it easy compared to Noah. Uh, you do not have to go out and build that ark. What an enormous job that was. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do anything that comes even close to that. What do you have to do? If you want to be saved from your sins, you have to hear God's truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized in water for the remission of sins. It's pretty easy, isn't it? Pretty easy. And yet we still see people who are refusing this necessary thing, refusing God's grace by proudly resisting the, the, the necessity of submitting to God and doing His will. Grace has conditions attached to it. Of course, for all of us, even those of us who've already been baptized, we've got to continue to be faithful to the Lord. We can fall from His grace, and that's the last point we want to make. This grace of God, which is so necessary to us, can be lost. You might receive it initially, but then lose it later. And, and again, this is a point that is contested in the religious world, but I think the Scripture will prove that it is absolutely possible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, we then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, wait a minute. Here's a letter written to Christians, 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, We beseech you, we beg you, we plead with you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. To receive something in vain means it would be worthless, good for nothing. Well, why would Paul give that warning if it wasn't possible that you could receive the grace of God in vain? In Acts chapter 13, verse 43, Paul and Barnabas, as they went about through the churches, it says they, they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Well, why would Paul and Barnabas need to persuade folks to continue in the grace of God? By the way, we don't have time to look at that context this morning, but in that context, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were going back through some cities where they'd, they'd been run out of town and persecuted. And they went back into some of those same places for the purpose of persuading those new Christians to continue in the grace of God. Well, why would they do that? And why would they put themselves at risk? Why would they go into those dangerous environments to persuade people to continue in the grace of God if, if the fact of the matter is that once you're in God's grace, you're always in God's grace and you can never lose that. Why would they make that dangerous effort to persuade them to continue in the grace of God? The classic text on this, the one that we all need to be familiar with, is Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. It's possible to fall from grace. The, the, the old expression we've always used to emphasize this point is you can't fall out of something that you've not been in. You can't, for instance, fall out of a boat that you weren't in. You had to be in the boat in order to fall out of the boat, right? You'd have to be in grace to be able to fall out of grace. But the very fact that he says you can fall from grace here proves that it can be lost. It is a real possibility. So what about God's grace? Some folks would like to suggest to you that it's a new thing. They've discovered uh, some insights that had never been seen before. Uh, we don't believe that. The grace, is it an important subject? Yes, it's absolutely vitally important subject. We need to be so grateful for the grace of God. He has shown kindness to us, which we didn't deserve, and it, and, and it provides what we could never accomplish on our own. It's for us all, but it can be refused, 
We've got to meet its conditions, and we've got to stay in the grace of God because we can lose it once we've received it. God's grace, such an important subject, important for us all. We hope that what we've had to say is helpful this morning. What about you? Have you responded to the grace of God? Have you taken advantage of it? We've tried to explain this morning the necessary conditions in order to both become a child of God and to remain in His grace. It might be that someone in our assembly this morning desires to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation which we enumerated earlier. If that's the case, we're ready to assist you. Let us know. We'd be glad to study with you more if you have questions about that before you make that decision. If you're a Christian already, but you've not remained in the grace of God, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing. Oh.